Thanks so much. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Katie said, my name is Chris, and um, I'm part of the team here at Grace Church. I work on the staff here, and um, my role, part of my role is that I oversee worship here at the church, and so it's my joy today to be able to speak into that subject, um, and as Katie said, we're continuing our series uh, looking at gifts um, that are talked about in this letter, um, 1 Corinthians 12, 14. Um, today, I'm going to be picking up in chapter 14 of that letter, um, but just before we get into it, if you happen to miss the intro at the beginning of the service, and you're thinking, well, that worship time was short. Is he going to talk for the rest of it? I'm not. Don't worry. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to put a little bit more time into worship at the end. And, and John and I were joking earlier, like, it's always a bit of a shame if you get this talk on worship, and it's like, cool, well, we'll see you next week. So we thought, well, why don't we actually give you the chance to do it? So there's going to be more worship time to come uh, at the end of, of my message this morning. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 today. Um, And uh, let's kind of read the passage that we're going to be looking at. If you've got a Bible or you have it on your phone, um, get out now, have that so that you can reference it as we go through. Um, We're going to pick up in chapter 14, verse 26, and we're going to read through to verse 33. Um, I'm reading from the NIV translation today. You might have something slightly different. Don't worry, the essence of it will be roughly the same, but what I'm reading will be on the screen. So if you want to follow along there, that's totally fine. Cool, so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, from verse 26 to 33. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Cool, so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, here this morning. And just before we get into the detail of this passage, um, I do just want to recap some of where we've been so far over the last few weeks um, and give you a little bit of context to what we're reading, because it's always super helpful to know what it is that you're looking into in the Bible. So what this is, 1 Corinthians, is actually a letter um, written by the Apostle Paul um, to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. It was a church that he founded, and then since he did that, he kind of went on to continue his ministry elsewhere. In his absence, the the church has essentially descended into spiritual chaos. And so he writes to them from afar, and um, I don't know, is this a very British thing? Has anyone ever written a strongly worded letter when they've been angry or frustrated about something? I've definitely had the intention of doing it hundreds of times, but I've always bottled it every single one. But that's basically what Paul is doing here. He's writing a very strongly worded letter to this church to say, no, I want to correct your malpractice here. Here's how you should be conducting yourselves. And in the chapters that we're covering, 12 to 14, um, Paul is specifically focusing on the gifts of the Spirit, which is why we call the series Gifts, and how are we supposed to use them, what they're good for, how we're not supposed to use them, or how they operate in a, a corporate setting and so you see Paul talk in great detail through these chapters uh, about those things, about the spirit gifts. And 
particularly even in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the gifts of tongues and interpretation in great detail and the gift of prophecy as well, just so we can really understand what the Bible says about those gifts and how we're supposed to operate with them in the church. And then you get to our passage today, 1 Corinthians 14, and you hit verse 26. This section is essentially Paul's concluding remarks on everything that has come before. He's basically saying, in light of all of my instructions so far, taking into account every detail, every comment, this is what you're supposed to be like when you gather. This is how you should worship in that context. And so today, we're going to delve firstly into some of the how. Like We're just going to go through verse by verse and just look at what he's describing. Like Look at some of the mechanics of it working in, in practice. But more than that, I don't just want to look at how we do it and have some sort of workshop. I want to cast a vision for why. Like Why do we and should we worship in such a way? And ultimately, I want us, hopefully, to get some answer to the question of how can we as Grace Church best honor and bring glory to God in the way that we worship? Because don't we want that? I certainly do. As someone that's involved in worshiping this church, I want us as Grace Church to worship in the way that brings him the most glory and honor. Every time we do it on a Sunday, every time we do it in home group, whatever the setting wants to honor him. So hopefully that's where we're going to get to. That's the plan. Let's get straight into it. Let's get into verse 26. He opens with this question, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? That is very much the comment on in light of this. It's like taking everything into account, what then shall we say about worship? Then he says, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So the first thing he says after that question is when you come together. It's not if, it's when. So he is presuming that the people of God will gather in a corporate setting like this. This is a very biblical thing that we do. It's not just a habit or a routine. We gather in a corporate context. And in that context, he says, each of you has something to bring. He then lists a few gifts of the Spirit, things you can share and offer. And it's worth saying that this list that he's referring to here is is not exhaustive. It is not just these things, because there are some glaring omissions. I mean, he doesn't mention prayer. You think, Paul, come on, mate. You really should know about this stuff by now. Prayer is real important. It's this stuff and all of the other things that you can bring. There are other lists that he gives himself in other letters in the Bible. So he's, it's illustrative here, not exhaustive. It's not just these things. It's all of the gifts that can be offered into a worship context. But importantly, he says that each of you has one of these things to bring. It's not some of you. It's not just the leaders amongst you. It's not the most spiritual or the most experienced of you. It's each of you. And I believe that's his word to us, to you today as well. That each of you, if you are a believer in Jesus and you live your life for him, you have something unique to bring to this environment. Whether it's one of these things, whether it's something from another list, a gift of the Spirit, you have something to offer. And I have long held this conviction that when we worship, it's not just that a few people have something to offer and everyone just follows suit, but that everyone can play a part. And yet, this June, I got absolutely nailed on this. I had a fresh revelation of this notion once again. When I was at a a worship conference in Birmingham, and I was in a seminar um, on the theology of music, 
And the guy that was giving it, you know, he's got like PhDs falling out of his ears. He's incredibly smart. And he, he just went off on a tangent at one point to kind of veer off of like the detail of musicality stuff. To, I guess bring like a bit of a pastoral moment to the room. And he started talking about this thing, a musical term, timbre, T-I-M-B-R-E. And forgive me if you are more musical than I am, because you'll probably know a better definition than what I'm about to give. You can come and suggest that to me at the end. But in layman's terms, timbre basically means the character of a musical sound versus and against its pitch, i.e. High, how high or low it is, or its intensity with which it's given and delivered. And he explained that, you know, that means that when a trumpet and a piano play exactly the same pitched note with the same intensity, you can tell the difference. Each sound is very unique. And he said that that's because of the very makeup of the instrument itself, right? The materials with which it's been made, the way it all intricately works together and fits in to produce that sound is totally different and unique. And then this is where it got really personal. He says, in the same way as I've just described as those musical instruments, every single person has their own spiritual timbre to bring into every sphere that they're in. Because every single one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. That's what the Bible says of us. And therefore, what I have within me and what you have within you totally unique. What you bring, no one else can. Because of the way that you've been made, because of your spiritual journey, because of your heart, everything that's in you, no one else on the planet can bring that. And it just absolutely nailed me. Because for so long, I have struggled with comparison. And I know that many of us will. Comparison is such a thief of joy. And as, as someone that leads worship, I was forever comparing myself to worship leaders in other churches in different contexts and saying, oh, if only I sounded like them or I could lead like that or I like the way they do that, they get way more praise and plaudits than I do. And then I heard this, and not in a boastful way, not in an arrogant way, but I was just like, man, none of them can do what I do. Like, no one can bring and lead like I do. And the same is true of every single one of us. It's not arrogance, it's just honoring God's creation in us. That what you bring, nobody else can. And when you don't offer it, we lack. There is something missing. We lose out. And so Paul's heart here is that every single one of you, if you know Jesus, has something to offer into the worship environment. Then he zooms out from the individual to this much wider view where he says that everything must be done so that the church may be built up. It's a big clarifying statement right, to say that every single thing that gets brought in a worship environment like this must come through that filter. Right, not just some things, not just certain things, but the whole lot has to be so that the church gets built up. So that means whenever we're going to bring something or offer some sort of contribution in a time of worship, we must filter it through that same statement. And so that means maybe you're thinking, oh, I might bring a song now, and it's kind of because you want to build up the church, but it's mostly because you think you've got a stellar voice and you want to sing. If that's the case, maybe just check yourself. Check your heart motive. Maybe you're going to pray and you think, oh, I learned some pretty big words this week in that book. 
I'm going to pray this out. People are going to blow their socks off. Again, maybe just check your heart and think, is my motive here to build up the church or is it just to build me up? Everything must be done so that the church is built and strengthened. And the reason why Paul makes such a strong statement in the kind of corporate setting is because he's having to fight against a very individualized view of worship. Because as we've seen in the last few weeks um, in some of the other messages in this series, that the Corinthian church, so many were just vying for position in worship in the way that they were praying and bringing their contributions. I mean, they were barely contributions at all because it was chaos. They were all trying to seem impressive, to be the more dominant voice in the room. It was all about the individual looking impressive. And Paul's point here is trying to say, no, I I want you to lift your eyes beyond just yourself and to the wider body. And on the one hand, I think it's easy to dismiss this and say, well, the Corinthians got it all wrong. We're doing much better. Now, I agree, we are doing, I think, better than they were. But in modern-day worship culture, I don't think we're far away from having a very individualized view of our worship. Like, I I know what it feels like. You, You come to church, and you find your seat. And then that becomes, like, your personal space. And you think, I hope no one invades this for my worship. If someone lifts their arm through that space, you whoa, hey, whoa, back off. This is my worship. Or if someone next to you is a little bit too loud for your liking, you think, oh, they're they're messing up my worship. But actually, it's not just about the individual seats. Paul's point here is about the whole church's worship. It's not just mine. It's not just yours. It's ours. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Of course, we have a personal encounter with the risen Christ. But it's a component of a much bigger whole, a much more beautiful picture. And... Lots of us will know what this feels like in in as much as many of us will know what it is to go from just having an individual experience of something to a shared experience. Whether it's a a music concert, a gig of some sort, and you're there with hundreds, maybe thousands of people singing the same thing, that is much more powerful and more emotive than when it's just you in your bedroom. When you go to a sporting event and you're in a crowd of thousands cheering for the same common cause and goal, that is much more powerful than when it's just you sat in the lounge in front of a telly. Even if we've not had those experiences, we all know what it is just to have the joy of sharing an experience with at least one other, like the delight there is in that sense of community. And even if we've not had that, well, we know the lack of it. All of us can resonate with some sense of, oh, I wish I had someone to share this with in those big moments in life. And that's because God didn't design us to do this thing on our own. This thing that we call life, he wanted us to do it with each other as a community, as a people. And so the same is true of worship. He doesn't just want you to come, have your worship experience, and then leave and have nothing to do with everyone else. He wants us to come together, to be the body, to have that corporate expression of our worship. In God, we are part of something much bigger than just ourselves. And that is wonderfully illustrated in... um, The book of 1 Peter, a little bit later in the New Testament, another letter, which I'm just going to read a portion out to you now. Uh, I'm going to pick up in chapter 2 of 1 Peter in verse 4. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, which is reference to Jesus, who was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Then there's a few verses in which he describes Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of our, of our faith. Then I'll pick up again in verse 9. He says of us that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Let's all together say, we are the people of God. We are the people of God. That's what God has called us to. Yes, each of us is a living stone being built into this spiritual house. But the end goal is something much grander than just ourselves. And there's tons of other imagery in Scripture that captures the essence of church, of God's church, his people. There's this in 1 Peter about this spiritual house, this building founded on Jesus, our cornerstone. Then earlier in this book, actually, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, Paul describes the church as a body, a physical body where everyone has a part to play and a role to fulfill with Jesus Christ as the head. And ultimately, in Revelation, you read of the church being like the bride of Christ, awaiting the return of Jesus, the bridegroom. And in all of these images, these depictions of the church, they pivot and focus around Jesus being at the center and the foundation of the whole thing. That yes, it's a bunch of individuals, but it's something much broader focusing around one point in him. Let's carry on and go into verse 27. This is where Paul starts to get into a little bit of kind of some of the practical outworking of like, well, what happens in a worship time? Um, Verse 27 through to verse 32 is what we're going to look at now. He starts by saying, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret Now, that actually is relatively self-explanatory. It's just like, it's not loads of people, it's just two at the most, three. One at a time, there's a sense of kind of order there. And importantly, someone must interpret. Again, like it's not an optional thing. if If a tongue is brought in a corporate setting, somebody must interpret so that everyone can understand. And so that might be why, if you've been here a little while, you'll have heard maybe worship leaders or meeting leaders just pause. If someone brings a tongue in worship and then something else happens that's unrelated, just say, hey, it's great that God's here. It's amazing that he's at work amongst us. We're just going to go back and just wait for the interpretation to that tongue because the Bible says that there must be an interpretation. So we're just following the instructions of Scripture. And when the interpretation has been brought, then we'll continue, see where else God takes us. And then in verse 28, it says, if there is no interpreter... The speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, the point here is that when you're in another context where you're not sure if there is someone that could interpret, that has the gift of interpretation, well, then don't bring anything. And let me just say, if you're here at Grace Church on a Sunday, in this context, I promise you, I absolutely guarantee there will always be someone in the room that has the gift of interpretation, that will interpret a tongue if you bring one. So you never have to have that concern or worry here. But if you visit another church, a different environment, and you're not sure, Paul's instruction here is, well, don't bring and impose kind of your view and your gift in an environment where maybe they don't even teach on the gifts of tongues and interpretation. Instead, you just allow that to sit between you and the Lord. Just so that there's like this sense of order and unity in the wider body. Then he moves on and talks in quite a similar way about prophecy. 
uh, in verse 29, says, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So again, it's not like a long list, 10, 12, 15 prophecies, and then it's like, well, what are we supposed to do with all that? Just two or three, any one time, one after another, and give space for people to weigh what has been shared. So it's like just a moment to pause and just reflect, and does it line up with what the Bible says? To weigh it in our hearts. And then he picks up in verse 30, it says, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Now, when I first read this, it, kinda, it sounds unfair on the person that's giving the prophecy. How on earth are you supposed to know that someone else has got a prophecy? Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But when I was reading the commentators, they mostly say and agree that it's not so much about like discerning when something else is brought, but much more about just the order of it and how you have total control over how long you go on for. So if you bring a prophetic word, just don't overindulge. Bring what you feel the Lord wants to say, and once you've brought that, you give way, and then the next voice comes through and shares. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Again, just trying to bring this sense of order to things for the sake of the church being encouraged in this environment. And then finally, in verse 32, he says, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Now, this statement does obviously refer to prophecy, but it's also harking back to that which has come before. So it's not just on prophecy. His point is that prophecy and tongues and interpretation and the other gifts that I'm alluding to, they all fulfill this, where the spirit, though powerfully indwelling within every single one of us, is still subject to our own control. And we've heard it from the platform in the last few weeks, but I'll say it again. We are never possessed in the Spirit. We're never overtaken by the Spirit in such a way that we can't control it. Because God is kind. God is loving. He's gentle and tender with us. And so in every single moment when someone is bringing something into the room, you are in total control of that, which is kind of part of Paul's point here. Like You're not just overtaken and go on for ages you just use your own discernment and think, I've shared what I need to bring, I will stop. And it's just worth commenting, I guess, again, like another sort of partial point to help you, that it means also that when you want to offer something into a time of worship, you, you're not just waiting for this kind of overwhelming burst of the Spirit, and therefore something comes out of that. Like it's a choice. Like each of you has something to bring, and you just choose to bring it. So in, in fact, you might not be feeling much at all. I think sometimes we hinge too much on like the feelings. But hey, if you know that God is good and you're here to worship him, why don't you tell us? Pray. Find a scripture that describes his goodness. Sing a spiritual song. And probably what will happen is then actually you, you will begin to feel. Faith will begin to rise as you exercise these gifts. So you are always in control. You don't have to wait for some overwhelming feeling to burst from within you. So there's all of this detail here that Paul gives about like how it's supposed to look when we do this, when we gather as a church, when the Corinthian church came together. It's so much order. It can sound, maybe, depending on your kind of like worldview, maybe kind of like rules. Like you're being told what to do. And I definitely think there's something in the human condition that doesn't like being told what to do. Trivial example, 
but who's ever walked past a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch? The laughs would suggest that many of you in the room have walked past such a sign and have still touched said surface. I do it every time. And I don't know whether it's just I'm playing the odds and think, well, the chances of me actually going past at the time when it's actually wet are so slim, I'll be fine. More than likely, it's just I don't like being told what to do. Do not touch this wall. Who are you to tell me not to touch this wall? I'll jolly well touch whatever I please. <laughs> now, I know it's silly, but like, there's definitely something in us, I think, that likes just kind of pushing the boundaries of what we've been told to do. Maybe not break the rules, but bend them and push them to their limits. So why here is Paul so intent on creating this environment of order and structure, giving us these guidelines? Well, we get our reason in verse 33. Paul says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That is the reason why. This whole time, Paul is trying to bring a sense of order from chaos because that's what God does. That's what God is like. And I think if I'd been reading this just on my own, just kind of briefly and quickly, I'd have skated past this in a moment. But as I was studying and reading the commentators, I realized that this sentence here, this statement at the end, is much more profound than... I had ever known. The commentator Gordon Fee says this, Paul is arguing that the basis of all of these instructions is ultimately theological. It has to do with the character of God versus the deities of the cults whose worship was characterized by frenzy and disorder. The theological point is crucial. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. Point being, God is perfectly in control all the time. He is steadfast, completely in his nature. He's never up and down in his temperament. He's never confused. He's never caught off guard. He's extravagant with his love towards us and wild with his affections for us. And so, therefore, our worship should reflect all of that as well. The worship of God's people should reflect him. Not the gods of the age, but him. And in fact, I want to put to you that, that when we worship like this, in the way that Paul is describing, when we operate and use the grace gifts of the Spirit, when we steward them well, when we do it in such a way that is order and safety in the environment, not only is that the worship that's the most reflective of God, I believe it's the most honoring of him as well. Because it's what he has ordained for us. He has chosen it for us. This order is put in place to prevent practices like self-indulgence, dominance, pride, and chaos in the worship setting. Because that doesn't reflect God. That reflects something else of this age. But when we worship this way, our worship looks like the one true God. That's Paul's point here. But we must make sure that we don't swing to either extreme here. One of the other commentators, Richard Hayes, puts it like this. He says, in Paul's vision for Christian worship, there is neither stiff formality on the one hand, nor undisciplined frenzy. The community's worship is more like a complex but graceful dance. You see, 
we're not supposed to be so loose in our worship that it becomes frenzied and chaotic and out of control because that doesn't honor God, that doesn't reflect him, it doesn't look like him. We're also not supposed to be so tightly controlled with our worship that it becomes formulaic and stiff and rigid, predictable, because that's not what God's like either. God has a better way. It's right here in Scripture. He has a better way for his people to engage and encounter him. It's not frenzied and out of control, but it is free in the truest sense of that word. And it's not rigid and stiff, but it's reverent. And it's safe. And it's there in in that true expression of worship that I believe the church comes to life. That the people of God fulfill that which they were made for. It doesn't matter whether you're doing this in a home group or with hundreds of people. When we worship like this, we reflect God. We honor him. And it it becomes much more than just some religious routine, right? It's, It's not just supposed to be something that we do on a Sunday, that just is part of your kind of weekly rotation, we, we become the worshipers that the Father is seeking, those that worship in the power of the Spirit founded in the truth of his word. That's what God is after, and this way fulfills that. We become the set-apart people that Jesus died for. Because God gave his best for us in Jesus, Didn't he? He gave his his one and only, his most treasured son to come to earth, to die, that we might enter into relationship with him forever, that we might know the fullness of life. And now that we're in, we have a chance to give our best to God, and part of that is our worship. Part of giving our best is saying, I'm going to live a life for you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to honor and reflect you in every element of my life. And I believe that Grace Church at its best, when we are most honoring and bringing glory to God, is us being a people that flow in the power of the Spirit, that are truly led by the guiding of the Spirit in our worship times, through the gifts of the Spirit. And all of that is done in its right and proper way where there's order and safety and unity and harmony so that it truly reflects the very nature of God the Father. And in all of it, we do it for the glory of the Son, who is our cornerstone and our foundation, who is our head and our focal point, and ultimately who is our bridegroom. One day we will see him again. He is going to return. He is my Savior. He is your Savior. But he's our king as a people. So if I might just pick up on the metaphor from before. Every time we come into this environment, we are to take to the floor in this graceful and complex dance. And each of us has something to bring, has an offering of praise to bring into this room, to contribute to the building of the spiritual house. Let's make sure we do it all for the strengthening of the church. Check our motives. Check our hearts in it all. And let's do everything when we worship in a way that reflects the nature of the Father, that honors the Holy Spirit and brings glory to Jesus, the Son. Amen? Why don't the band come back up?
here's what we're going to do next. We've got plenty of time now, which is really nice. And we are going to...